Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. Now, when I was growing up, we had a few rules. Uh, did anybody else have those growing up? Yeah? <laughs> okay, uh, just a couple of them were to finish all of your food, don't intentionally aggravate your brother, don't hide your food under the couch. Uh, but if one in particular that stood out to me growing up was that if you took a tool from my dad's tool bench, you had to put it back in exactly the same place where you got it from. And my dad had a lot of tools. So you might ask yourself, how is it possible that you could even possibly put a tool back in the exact place where you got it? Well, you'd have to know what my dad's tool bench looked like. It was highly organized. Um, I tried to find a picture on the internet of something similar, but even the internet pales in comparison uh, to the highly organized nature. Not only was everything in its proper place on the wall, but it was organized according to job and the most logical progression of what tool would be needed when, and it was outlined in a Sharpie marker so that you could put it back to the exact same place uh, where it was. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought my dad was absolutely crazy. Uh, this was this was too much, uh, too much care for the position of the tools. Uh, but now that I've grown up and I have a I have a shop of my own, I have my own tool bench. Guess what I've done on my tool bench? No, you're wrong. I'm still not that crazy. <laughs> uh, but it is important, and I've come to appreciate how it's not just enough to have the right tool for a job. It also makes all the difference if you have a place prepared for that tool so that you know exactly where it is and you can get to it uh, without confusion or uh, forgetting where you've put that tool. Similarly, in this chapter, what we're going to be seeing is all of the places, several of the places that God has prepared for his tools. He is very particular about them. In fact, he's even more particular about these places than my dad was for where his tools were. And the reason he's so particular is because he's a good and a loving father. And he's preparing these places very particularly so that he can be with his people. As a church, we've been going through Exodus. Uh, in the past few weeks, we've been studying uh, the way that God has set out in meticulous detail uh, the design for the tabernacle. This is the place we started with the innermost holy place that God's presence dwells, and we've been moving slowly outward from there. Today, we're going to focus on three things. We're going to learn about the altar on which the priests made their sacrifices. We're going to focus on the courtyard, and we're going to focus on the oil that God commanded be brought to the lamp within the holy place. So sacrifice is something that has been a big theme throughout Exodus as well. Uh, serving the Lord and making sacrifices was specifically what Moses told Pharaoh was the purpose of why they needed to leave Egypt in Exodus 8. We're going to spend uh, even more time in Exodus 29 in a couple of weeks uh, talking about these sacrifices. And the Bible gives even more detail in Leviticus, uh, which we're not reading at this point, but maybe a future uh, sermon series uh, from GFC will go through Leviticus. But it's clear that God takes sacrifices 
very, very seriously. So keep that in mind as we look at the kind of place that God prepares uh, for these essential offerings to be brought to him. What kind of place would God want to make for something that is so important as a sacrifice is to him? So turn with me to Exodus 27. That's on page 44 if you've got one of the Bibles at the door. Uh, and we're going to read this together. It's Exodus 27, 1 through 8. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a bronze net, a network of bronze, and on the net, <clears throat> excuse me, on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. So here we see an altar. It's about seven and a half feet square. Uh, this is about a foot longer than the length of a king-size bed. Okay, so for your mental image there, you can think it's that about that long uh, square. Uh, and it's made of bronze. There's a grate that's on top of it to hold the sacrifice. And it has an opening in the center that's going to catch all of the ashes from those sacrifices. And it's made of acacia wood. Uh, just like a lot of the other furniture that we've been discussing so far in Exodus, Gene and Dan uh, talked about some of this other furniture. It was also made of acacia wood. And it also has poles and rings that have been prepared for it so it can be mobile, just like the other pieces of furniture as well. But there are two major differences to this furniture that I want to highlight uh, that are different up until this point. The first is that this altar is covered in bronze, not gold, and it has horns. Okay, horns is something very different. Uh, look at verse 2 again. You shall make horns for it on its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. In our modern culture, uh, horns often tend to signify maybe something evil, um, just look at like the Tower of Sauron, right? That has more horns on it than all the bulls that you've ever seen in Madrid or elsewhere. Uh, and, but in the, the culture of the day, in particular to the Israelites and the other cultures as well, horns did not signify evil. In fact, they symbolized strength. This was something that lots of different cultures of the time would put on stuff to signify the strength of that object, either their king or their deity. Uh, some of the pagan altars at that time also had horns on them. And when the Israelites uh, at that time had turned to worshiping idols, uh, they, they made reference to those horns. It was something familiar to them as they would have seen on the Lord's altar. Amos 3, 13 through 14 
uh, God is referring to what is going to happen to those horns on the altars of the pagans. I'm going to read this for you. It says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day that I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And this is signifying that those false gods were powerless before the Lord of hosts. No other God has the strength that the Lord of hosts has. But although those horns were common across multiple cultures, what was unique to the altar of God is the purpose to which those horns were put. The strength of God is not used to destroy or to break down, but to the Israelites, that power was something that you could go to and petition as a source of mercy. In 1 Kings, many people who were convicted and guilty could throw themselves onto the altar of God and grab it by the horns and ask to be forgiven, to be shown mercy for a crime that they had committed. And it's clear in the instructions of how God instructed uh, the Israelites to make this, to make this altar that these horns, this strength, and this possibility of mercy were to be of one piece with a sacrificial altar. It is in the very nature of God that sacrifice and strength and mercy are all of one piece. They're to be found in the same place at this altar where you could come and could sacrifice before God. And ultimately, we see this expression carried through uh, in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the place where God provided for the sacrifice of his son, providing for the ultimate atoning mercy. Not just uh, It's not just enough to have a sacrifice, but we must have the cross. We recently celebrated Easter not that long ago uh, and the death of, and resurrection of God's Son. And why is the cross the central image to that celebration? It's because that is the place that God provided and it's a beautiful place. Uh, it, it took something that was meant uh, as, a, as a terrible thing and it has redeemed it and made it the, the, the perfect representation of who God is. Uh, in Mark 13:45 and 46, uh, the Bible says, Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, this is Jesus, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus was willing to go to that place as a sacrificial offering and complete the plan that will bring humanity back into reconciliation with God through mercy. This submission uh, to the plan of the Father provided salvation and mercy for those of us who are separated from God. This was prophesied even as far back as Isaiah 53, where it says that he, would, he Jesus, would be oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. 
Well, let's go back to the text uh, in Exodus 27, verse 8. As it was shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. So this is not an accident. The way that God is preparing this altar is specific to show something about how God prepares those places for his will to be accomplished. And God is faithful to accomplish his will. Just as every tool in my dad's shop had a place where it could be laid out with care so that it could accomplish its purpose, so God has been preparing everything throughout history and even in our hearts with an even greater purpose. So church, please, let's thank God for the cross. Not just the sacrifice, but also for the great care with which he prepared the place of the sacrifice. Without that place, the sacrifice couldn't happen. Now, I love the picture of what God did here. So what, what better symbol of the strength of Rome than the cross? This is a possibility. This is where, where Rome could take people and sentence them to death and execute them. In the case of Jesus, an innocent man in a degrading, painful, and shameful way, which just shows how much stronger they were than all of the other nations of the time. And yet that is the symbol that God used to show this is not the strength of Rome. This is the strength of God. Not where the innocent or the guilty are punished, but where the mercy of God can flow out on all of us who are guilty and separated from sin. They're separated from God by our sin. So let's take every sin that we have that has made us guilty and let's throw that onto the, the saving mercy of God. Let's take hold of that altar by the horns and say, God, I'm guilty. Please, I need your mercy. And then let God change our hearts and mold it into a place where his will can be accomplished. And we can pursue the fruits of the Spirit. We can pray for God to make our hearts a place where his will can be readily accomplished, where he knows right where our heart is and can use us right away to accomplish his will. So now let's let's continue on uh, outward uh, from the tabernacle. Again, we started at the center in the Holy of Holies a few weeks ago, moved to the holy place, and now we're going to move out to the outermost part uh, where past the altar of sacrifice, where we talk about the tent, uh, the wall that is surrounding the courtyard. This is the next section in your outline, a place for God's people. Think about the last time that you took a long trip. Uh, maybe this was several hours in the car during a holiday or a flight that you had to take for work. Uh, and the, the trip was so stressful uh, that you, you just want to get home. And you arrive at home and you open the door and you walk in and just that sense of peace when you arrive at home kind of settles on you. You take a deep breath. You look around. You see the stains. You see uh, the, the chaos even maybe in which you left it. Maybe it's a little bit tidy when you, when you left for your trip. Um, but what you know is that you are home. There is no other place like that. And this is the kind of place that God is preparing for his people, a place that they can come home to 
uh, if only for a short time. This court, this outer court of the tabernacle, uh, is a place not just where the priests could go, but where all of the people of Israel could come home. This is something that God is, is setting out that is a place set apart, a holy place within a holy nation. And it's not just where those priests could come, but where every person could come and could fellowship with God. So let's look at this construction of this outer tent, this outer courtyard, uh, and the purpose that it served as part of God's plan to accomplish his will. Read with me in Exodus 27, 9 through 19. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their bases shall be of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long. Its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And on the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits and the breadth fifty and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and the bases of bronze. All of the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all of its pegs and all of the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Now, this was the place where all of the people, not just the priests, could go to make sacrifice. And all of this detail in the text here uh, is pointing to the very, very nature of God, the fact that we are going home. Even the way that the tabernacle was described and how it was facing east to west, uh, this is a reference back to Eden. We've seen throughout this text uh, of the tabernacle, how many references, how many images there are to Eden. Uh, and when, when Adam and Eve had been cast out of Eden in Genesis 3, they were traveling to the east. They were expelled to the east. So this position of the tabernacle gives a picture of coming back to the west and entering into the home that had been lost. And I want to try to paint a picture for you of what visiting this place might have been like. I'm going to be using the details uh, directly from the text. And I want you to close your eyes and try to picture this with me. Okay, so close your eyes. Imagine that you are an Israelite. You're coming to make sacrifice to God at the tabernacle. You're walking around. You walk around the outer perimeter of the court. You smell smoke and cooking meat. 
You catch glimpses of color and movement from between the pure white linen curtains and the bronze pillars that are capped with silver. You see the smoke of sacrifice rising into the air as you come leading your animal around. As you round the eastern edge of the courtyard, you see a beautiful gate of purple and blue and red. This is the entrance to God's holy place, the house that he caused to be made so that he could live with his people, with you. As you turn toward the west and you push through the curtain gate, looming large in front of you is the altar where you see the priests offering sacrifices to God. And beyond that is the holy place where God's presence dwells. Here lives the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here lives the God who can make the rivers dry up and crush even the might of Egypt. Here lives the God who can even forgive sin. You feel an enormous sense of relief. You are about to be forgiven. Last month, in a heated argument about money, you struck your brother, furious. and You can still feel the impact on your hand. Your neighbor left you in charge of his flock for a short time, but you neglected them, and one was killed by lions. Although you apologized, the trust has been lost, and the relationship is damaged to the breaking point. All of that is about to be made right. You are going to offer the sacrifice of a lamb, and the priests will burn it on the altar. Your sin will be covered by the blood of that lamb. How good it is to be in the courts of the Lord. I want to read to you uh, Psalm 84, 1 and 2, what the psalmist says about this particular place that God has prepared to be with his people. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. This place that God made for his people to come home is a holy place. And he established boundaries in the form of this wall that we just read. Uh, around that place to set it apart, to make it special, to give a place that Israel could come home and fellowship once again with God. This place is different from any other place in Israel, a holy place within a holy nation. One of my favorite nonfiction books uh, is called The Celtic Way of Evangelism, uh, where the author talks about the importance of community in reaching the lost. And one of the methods uh, that the Christian Celts employed is uh, in reaching their neighbors was establishing communities of believers right next to a community where non-believers lived. And the first thing that they would do when they moved into this area was build a wall. But this wall was only about one foot high. Why would they do that? What is the benefit of a one-foot-high wall? That doesn't defend you against anything. That doesn't protect you from anything. But what it does is it marks out a boundary where 
things are different, where people are going to live according to the kingship of Christ. And outsiders were welcome to come into this community. You could take a step over this wall and you're in the Christian community. But you can see that things are different. The rules are different. People don't behave the same way they do on the other side of the wall. And that's true with the tabernacle that God is preparing for his people. This is a place where they could come home. Where they could be with God yet again. And where the rules were different than outside. This is what Jesus said in John 14. 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have, to- I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Heaven is this place for us, church. This is where we can look forward to being with God again, where his will is absolutely done. And in the meantime, we can pray that it's also done on earth. As Jesus said at the end of that, that you know the way where I am going, uh, we can ask a question along with Thomas. Thomas continuing in that that verse, John 14, 5, uh, 5, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So let's look at the picture that the tabernacle provides and see if we can glean any answers to this question that Thomas asks in the New Testament. How did you enter into the tabernacle? Well, there was a gate. There was one gate. Look at Exodus 27, 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. This is one gate. This is one entrance that you can turn to the west. You can leave the fallen world and you can go through this gate into the house of God. This is how Jesus responds then to Thomas, continuing in John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God is faithful to provide the place, this this tabernacle, where we can come home to. And he is faithful to provide a gate, an entrance that we can come through to enter into his home. There is only one Gate. There is only one way to come into the home of God. And church, that's through his son, Jesus Christ, that he provided for us to be with him. What a promise that is. That there is a way, there is a, there's a way we can come home. And it's not through our good deeds. It's not through some religious experience or some, some high that we feel when we come to church. It's certainly not through any other God. But we can look forward to the place where we will be with God forever. And we can be absolutely confident that God will provide the means to get there. And that changes everything. When we, when we think about this perspective that in the future we will be with God, that allows us 
that allows us to influence everything that we think and do with this truth. You can show grace to your children when they break something. You can trust God for the future even when you don't get a position that you deserve or recognition for hard work that you did. You can lay down your preferences even for your spouse. You can you can take your money and you can trust that God will provide for you. All of this is possible because of God's promise to take us to be with him and to provide the place where his will will be done. And in the meantime, we can try, we can pray that God makes our hearts a place where his will can be done and therefore can have a small representation of that will being done on earth. Just like that community was built with a wall where the rules are different. Our hearts can be a place where the rules are different. And our homes can be a place where the rules are different. And we can welcome our neighbors into our hearts and into our homes and we can show them the amazing work that God has done in our lives. The places that he has prepared to dwell with his people. Now let's move on to the last part of this chapter where God gives a command for how to prepare the oil uh, which is going to be burned in the lampstand we learned about in chapter 25. Gene talked about that in more detail, and now we see the uh, the oil that will allow that lamp to be burned. Read with me uh, Exodus 27, 20, and 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Now, the Israelites were commanded to bring oil so that the light may be in God's presence. And just like uh, with the place for sacrifice, it, just like if you do not have a place for sacrifice, sacrifice cannot happen. So too, without this oil, light cannot happen. You cannot be seen without this oil to burn. And what is this image of light? In John 8:12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And many times in Scripture, light is also equated with God's Word. Uh, one example is Psalms 119-105. The psalmist says, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We also see a connection to Genesis here again uh, and the Garden of Eden. We've seen that the very first thing God did when He created the world was to create light. But that light is going to go out. At the end of time, when things are wrapping up, uh, even that light that was created at the very beginning will go out. But there is one light and one word that was before all of that and will survive and be around after even the light of the universe has gone out. This is talked about in 1 Peter 1.23. 
since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This tabernacle that God set up will pass away. Actually, it has passed away. Uh, and even the, the temple that came after the tabernacle has passed away. But that which will not pass away is the word of the Lord. All creation itself will pass away. But in John 2, 18 through 22, Jesus makes this connection and takes it even one step further. He's talking about, um, he's in the temple and he's talking to the leaders there. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? But Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, but he was not speaking of the temple, but of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So when God commands his people to bring oil so that Moses and Aaron can use this perpetually to create light in his tabernacle. This was a command that is showing his unfailing nature. It is his, absolutely, we can rely on his constancy. And in doing this, he's also giving his people a command that would require them to be constant and faithful. This is going to require continual obedience. This language uh, in verse 21 that says from evening to morning before the Lord, uh, that meant more than just the hours from sundown to sunup. Uh, this was a symbol of something perpetual. Sort of like saying 24-7 uh, has an implication of something continual, not just a literal week. This command was that there would always be light in the presence of God. God is a constant God. His character doesn't change. And his expectations for his people is that they will also be faithful to him. What God established in his covenant is reliable. 24-7, never-ending, round-the-clock, unceasing, from evening to morning, always and forever. And this means that we can rely absolutely on the word of God. Forever. 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 We can forever rely on the word of God. And this is a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. God is not changing and he expects us to be faithful to him as well. So church, we can rest securely in God's promises. We can, we can know that he will keep his word. And we in our lives can allow his light to shine from us always. Whether we're at the grocery store or whether we're at home with family or whether we're at work with coworkers 
At all times, we can let people see the light of God that shines through us. And this, this is, this allows us to do things that will, will be a place that God can use us in His world. We can neighbor, we can go, even in our mess. Okay, this doesn't mean that we are perfect, but this means that the, the light of God is shining out of us. And when the, when the neighbors come in and they see our lives, they're not going to see perfection, but they're going to see a place that God is preparing that His will can be done in us. And we can observe these statutes throughout our generations. Parents, let me challenge you, do not let your kids miss this. This is something that they can be doing too. They can represent the light of Christ in their lives. And we have the responsibility and the great privilege and honor of showing them how to do that. So church, in conclusion, let's look back and see those things that we've talked about as places that God has prepared for his will to be done. We've seen in this picture of the tabernacle that he's provided a place to accomplish his plan for both sacrifice and of one piece with that, mercy. And he's provided a place where the holy God can meet his people. He's not satisfied with just one place where one guy can come once a year to, sacrifice, or to, to be with him, with the holy of holies. He's not even satisfied with the holy place where there's a group of people or special set-apart priests to be with him and to, to minister before him. He provided this courtyard that he could be with every one of his people. And praise the Lord that he didn't even just leave it there. He took it even out to the Gentiles through the death of his son on the cross. And lastly, we've seen the oil that he provides to allow as to, to mean that there will be perpetual light. This will never end. His promises are reliable forever. So pray with me, please, and then we will take uh, the Lord's Supper. Father God, I thank you for um, your word. Thank you, God, for Exodus and the great detail uh, that you laid out um, to, to live with your people, that you provide the tools uh, and the place for those tools that your will can be done. Heavenly Father God, I pray that you would make my heart a place where your will is readily done. God, uh, help all of those who are listening here today uh, likewise to, um, to come before you, God. May we all seek mercy through the sacrifice of your Son. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.